Today, we're, we're jumping into our second installment of this series, James, a faith that works. And, and today we're going to look at uh, a very uh, critical passage. And if you see there in your notes, uh, you'll see that there's a big idea for this series. And the big idea for the, this series is this. We sang about it. This is kind of what we've been talking about. We're going to talk about it throughout this series is this. Faith shows itself in action. Not just talk, not just belief, not just intellectual belief. You can say, hey, I'm this, but, but faith actually lives it out. It's, it's who we are, and, and, and it shows itself not just in uh, the bumper sticker on the back of our car or the ichthus or the Christian t-shirt. Uh, it shows itself in our lives. That's what we're after. That's what James is after. That's what God is after for us. And so today this chapter is incredibly convicting, I'll just tell you, all right? It's going to challenge us to, to kind of pull back the curtain of the motivation of our heart for how we live and how we treat people, how we look at others regardless of what they look like and whether they're like us or not. And then it also asks us a very big question, and the question is this. Is it, is it more important to have intellectual belief that does nothing, or is there something more that God's actually asking us to, to be about and live out? And so that's where we're going to go today. Very convicting stuff. I want to challenge you to take notes, follow along as we do this. I want to start by talking about state mottos, all right? Lots of state mottos. Uh, if you're maybe, how many of you are not from the state of Missouri? Let me just see your hands. So just, just some of us, okay, quite a few of us actually. But there's, every state has a motto, and sometimes it's on the flag, and it's on the website. Sometimes it's on our, 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 our license plates that have these different mottos. And so I just want to give you a couple. Uh, these aren't brand new. You won't go, oh, I didn't know that, all right? Like the first one. Florida, all right? The Sunshine State. Imagine that. You know, kind of jealous uh, of Florida because they get a lot of sun, a lot more sun. They kind of have more beaches than us. Uh, but that's the first one. Second one is this, Delaware, all right? The first state. They're kind of bragging a little bit, you know? It's like, ooh, the first state. That's awesome. Good for you. We're all states now. It's okay, you know? Uh, third, third state is this, Nevada, the silver state. Or as I like to call it, should be called everyone leaves, leaves broke state. All right, that's the reality of the state of Nevada. Uh, number four, Kentucky. It's called unbridled spirit. Uh, I guess it's kind of a horse theme and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, maybe that makes us rebellious. I have no idea. That's where I'm from. Virginia. How about this one? Virginia's for lovers. Well, Lottie freaking die. Woo! You just love people more than everybody else. Well, good for you, Virginia. Hawaii, the Aloha State. All right. How many of you have been to Hawaii? I'm jealous of you. Anyway, all right, number, number five, Idaho, very unlike the uh, Hawaii, the famous potato state. There we go. That's their motto. I don't know if I could choose between Idaho and Hawaii. I wouldn't have to pray about it. I think the Lord would just say, it's Hawaii, my friend. Go there. Uh, and then last one is Missouri. And you already know what this is. And, and I've known this motto long before I ever lived here. And I love this motto. I love the idea of the show me state. And I don't know if you know where it comes from, but I did some research and some study trying to figure out where did this motto come from. And it comes from basically uh, 19, or 1899, a congressman named Willard uh, Vandeveer said this in a speech. He declared this. He said, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton cockaburls and Democrats and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri and you got to show me. I like that. So you know you can talk all day long and we're getting ready to run into this crazy, all these races for all, for the, for the Democratic for the Republican, you know all this stuff, they're going to talk all this stuff and he's going you know what, you can, you can talk all day long but here's the reality I come from a state called Missouri and you got to show me You've got you to put faith in action. And that's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, is actually talking about in James chapter 2. So we're going to dive in. Uh, and in your notes, here it is. It's real simple. We'll just kind of start it off this way. Our life is the billboard for our faith. 
our life, not what you say, not what's on the back of your car, not, not what's in a box somewhere that you checked. Our life is the billboard for our faith. All right, that's where we're going to go over these, these next few minutes. And in fact, we're going to kind of break James into two parts today. Okay, the first part, uh, James 2, 1 through 13. We're going to look at one specific part, and then we're going to look at the back half, which is a little bit confusing, and we'll kind of flesh it out and see what God has to say to us. James 2, 1 through 13 says this. My brother says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, underline this, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Verse 6, but you have insulted the poor. It's not, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of Jesus to whom you belong? Verse 8, if you keep the royal law found in Scripture, underline this, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, circle this, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawgivers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at at, at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery and also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act of those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Verse 13, underline this. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then I put two underlines here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In your notes, God calls his people to reflect Jesus, to love all people, and to show no favoritism. Okay? He calls us to love, to reflect Jesus, to love all people, and to show no favoritism. He commands us to do that. In fact, right out of the gate, verse 1 in in chapter 2, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, don't show favoritism. And then he gives out this example where, where there's preference and partiality and favoritism that's shown to a rich man who gets the best seats and special attention and then looks at the poor man and says, hey, no, 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 just sit down over here. Sit down by my feet. You're not worthy to have a chair. It's discrimination. It's ugly. And it doesn't communicate the heart of God and it doesn't communicate someone who's been changed by the love of God when we have nothing to offer him that he still gave us unconditional love and amazing grace. Now, Favoritism happens in the business world. It happens at school lunchrooms. It happens in sporting teams. It happens in country clubs. And sadly, it happens in churches. Right? It happens in churches. It happens in places where there are weird cliques where you can't break in because, you know, we've been around and we know the lingo. We've been here forever. Or, or people that are trying to rub shoulders with those who are the most influential leaders in the church or pastors who, who, who treat people who are well off more differently and more carefully because of what they give in the offering. Pastors that are afraid to chase God's purposes because they, they, they fear, you know, upsetting people who've been around the church for a long time. It's horrible. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's favoritism. James 2.8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Love all your neighbors, everyone as yourself. 
James is trying to say, hey, listen, people matter to God. All people matter to God, and they should matter to us. And it doesn't matter where they live or what they drive or what their skin color is or whether they they wear a white collar or a blue collar or they're a hipster or a redneck or young and old or married or divorced or rich or poor, whether they have influence or whether they're completely struggling or how long they've been in church or whether they're a Christ follower or not or, or the level of messiness in their life. James says, love people well as Jesus loved us. See, Jesus loved us all the same. Didn't treat us differently. Jesus said, Paul said in Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This passage of what Paul is saying and what James is saying is it's simply this. It's not about you. And it's not about me. And man, don't we need to be reminded of that? I mean, we need serve day like all the time just to remind ourselves, it's not about me. It's not about my world, my schedule, my to-do list, my things. It's about what you got, God, going on. And I want to be a part of that because there's no place I would rather be than hearing your love, loving other people. A story is found uh, of a famous New York mayor known as uh, Mr. LaGuardia. He had a heart for the poor. And on a cold night in 1935, the mayor turned up at night court, uh, served there often, uh, the poorest ward in the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening, took over the, the, the bench himself, and a tattered old woman came dragged in by the policeman and, and also the shop owner who basically said she was charged for stealing a loaf of bread. The woman then said to Mr. LaGuardia, she said, My husband is dead. My daughter lives with me and, and her two grandkids, and we have no money. We're starving. My kids, my grandkids are starving. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. He said, it's a bad neighborhood, Your Honor. This woman should be punished. We can't just let her go by because if we do, then then it won't teach a lesson to our community and people will continue to steal. Mr. LaGuardia turned to the woman and said, He's right, I have to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. So I'll order you to pay a $10 fine. And as he was pronouncing the sentence, he reaches into his back pocket and grabs his wallet, pulls out the $10 bill, and puts it on the counter. And then he says, I now remit your your penance. Furthermore, I'm going to find everyone in this courtroom tonight 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal food to pay for their grandkids. The bailiff collected the money, and the woman walked out that night with $47 in her pocket. I love what James says here, James 2.13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God through Jesus gave us mercy instead of judgment. And how we forget that. It's amazing how much we, we love the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And then, and then when we look around at other people, those who hurt us or those we don't know or we see them in their need, and we kind of look away from them and we don't extend mercy or compassion to them. We have to learn to be merciful to everyone. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love what Joseph Cook writes. He says, grace is the face love wears when it meets imperfection. See, that's a picture picture of Jesus. And that's a picture of his church. Maybe you've seen this photo. It was taken by a South African photojournalist named Kevin Carter. It was of a Sudanese toddler near the village of Ayad uh, before the famine. He said he he saw this starving child and the vulture in the background and because his heart couldn't take what was about to happen and because he himself felt powerless to do anything, convincing himself that he wouldn't know what to do with this little girl, he set his camera on a tripod, turned on the timer, and walked away. 
1994, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Smith confided in a friend. He said, I feel so horrible. I'm really, 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 really deeply sorry that I didn't pick this kid up. Three, three weeks after winning the prestigious award, ridden with guilt, Kevin Carter took his own life, committed suicide. The regret of inaction, doing nothing, goes against who God made us to be. God calls us to love our neighbor, calls us to consider others better than ourselves. He calls us to push past the awkward. He calls us to go regardless of what the situation is. He calls us to move past those things, not knowing how it will all work out, but to put our feet down where our faith is and trust God. And love our neighbor the way God loves us. Soren Kierkegaard described this tension between our thoughts and our faith and our actions this way. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, it's, we're obligated to act accordingly. Gateway, look at me for a second. We have to begin to move past this idea of simply understanding and, and move past the idea of not sure how it's going to work itself out. I'm just going to trust you and I'm going to be obligated to do it in any way, relationship, form, in our lives. Let's serve well. Let's love others well and demonstrate God's love in us through the way that we love other people. Second part of this. I thought that was hard. Here's the second part of this chapter. It, it, it kind of breaks us into two categories, right? There's lots of different categories of people, right? There, there, are, there are those who are the doers and those who are the talkers. There are those who love cats and those who love dogs. There are spenders. There are savers. There are people that like chick flicks and then there are men. There are Jayhawk fans and Tigers. Just want to make sure you're with me. There, there are University of Kentucky fans and then everybody else who hates the UK Wildcats because you're jealous. Anyway, but here's the big one. Here's the big one. If, if you were to ask people this question, Here's the question. Why should God let you into heaven when you die? Why should he let you into heaven when you die? Typically, they give one of two responses. The first response is this. There are those that would say, I put my faith and my trust in Jesus, in his perfect life, and his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And the fact that three days later, that, that the Spirit of God rose him from the grave, and because of that, we have hope. I put all my chips in, trusting that he's enough for me. It's all in, in faith known in, in this embracing of grace, that's how you get into heaven. Then there's a second group that would say this. No, it's about the good deeds you do. See, I, I, I'm trying to do good deeds because I want God to be honored with me. I want Him to be proud of me. I want Him to smile upon me. I want to have more good deeds than I have bad deeds. And, and if I have more good deeds than bad deeds, then, then you know what? I'm going to punch my ticket and He's going to have to let me in because I've done all these good things. So here's the question. Which is it? Are we saved by faith? Faith alone? We say by works or some combination of the two. The text in James chapter 2 creates a lot of discussion and even can move people in lots of places from a confusion standpoint. And so I want to walk through this part because I think it's very, very important. James chapter 2 verse 14 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims, circle that word, to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Now right away, James is kind of cluing us in on something with the word claim. What good is it that a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? This, this person claims to have faith in God. They, they claim to be a Christ follower. They claim to believe that there's a, there's, a, there's a God and He has a Son named Jesus. In your notes, go ahead and write this down. You already know this. A lot of people claim to have faith in Jesus. A lot of people claim to have faith in Jesus, right? You go to family reunions, you run into people, you go, Oh, you are? 
Like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Like, really? I love him. I love him. I mean, just all these things. And you're like, really? Yeah, I love it. A lot of people claim to have faith in Jesus. And there was an interesting article in Newsweek magazine by Kim, Kenneth Woodward. He talked about this idea of faith in America. And here's what he said. Provocative new surveys reveal a nation where most claim to be religious, but very few take their faith seriously. That should sting gateway. He goes on to say that the article, the sociologists were puzzled over surveys that suggest that the United States is like the most religious nation in the advanced uh, industrious West. He said this, 90% of Americans profess their belief in God, but sociologists are left scratching their heads because while 90%, over 90% believe that there's a God, the research shows that if you put 100 people in a room, 50 of them being Christ followers and 50 of them being, being atheists, people who don't believe in Jesus, and you watch their lives, and you watch how they live and their lifestyle and behavior, it would be statistically impossible to determine the believers from the atheist. That should sting, Gateway. A lot of people have faith, but they have no evidence, no deeds, no fruit in their lives. One of the commentators I read on this specific passage is from a guy named Dr. Douglas Moo, who's from Wheaton College. He's a He's a divinity professor there. Douglas suggests that the word claims to have faith refers to a a person who has an intellectual faith, not a genuine faith, but actually a bogus faith. That person claims to believe, maybe intellectually in their head, maybe even with their heart, they actually feel that there's actually a God that is out there. Maybe they feel that there's actually a God who had a son named Jesus who died on the cross, and they feel that the Bible is actually true, but they have no actions, no belief, no evidence of their faith in their life. Let me ask it a different way. If I ask you this question, how many of you believe that it's important to take good care of yourself by eating right, by, by not eating the wrong things, by, by getting off the couch and exercising, by making sure that you get enough sleep? Intellectually, we all believe that. No one's going, you know what, that's a joke. You, you should be able to eat what you want. Nobody, everybody believes that. Now, here's the question. But if you eat whatever you want, you never get off the couch, you never push away from the table, you never put on your running shoes, you never sweat, Can that kind of intellectual faith save your health? No. A different way. Same is true with marriage. If I ask all of you, do you believe that it's important to invest in your marriage, to to demonstrate your love for each other, to, to spend time praying with and for your spouse, being vulnerable with each other, dating each other, putting the needs of your spouse before your own? I think everyone in here would resound with me and say, absolutely. We absolutely believe that that's the right thing to do. But if you don't invest, you don't spend time with each other, you don't cherish them, you don't demonstrate your love, you don't care for, you don't communicate with, you, you, you say all those things intellectually, you don't do the right things without the evidence of faith in your marriage, does it save your marriage? The absolutely answer is this, No. Having faith in the brain with no inward change, no outward expression will not save the body, will not save a marriage, and it will not save your soul. James says some very strong words in verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. It's of no use. It does nothing. How many Americans believe in God? 
Recent poll said 93% of Americans believe in God. That's a great number, big number. A lot of, lot of people, 93 out of 100 go, yep, there's a God. Next question. How many Americans believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 86% of, of, of Americans believe that. 86%, that's a lot of people. 86 out of 100. Multiply that by billions of people. Follow-up question. What percentage of demons believe in God? What percentage of demons believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? You know what the answer is? 100%. 100%. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The word shudder is an interesting word right there. As you think about the word shudder, I think about a dog who gets spooked, you know, with the thunder and lightning, and, or they see another dog, or they see a cat, and the cat's kind of trying to whip at it, and all of a sudden the hair on its body just kind of creeps up. It's when we shudder. It's when we feel goosebumps, when we go, oh my gosh, there's somebody in the house. That's, that's the word shudder. What James is saying is this. Demons are not atheist. They're not agnostic. In fact, they even have emotions that are attributed to their faith. It says, even the demons believe and they shudder. But will that faith from those demons save those demons? No. You can have an intellectual faith. You can be moved emotionally. And then have a dead faith. A dead response in your life. Question. Is your faith similar to the faith of that of demons? James is saying it's got to be more than lip service. It's got to be more than just this intellectual understanding that there's a God, He's out there somewhere, and that I'm sure Jesus was really who Jesus was because I saw the passion of Christ. It's got to be real. It's more than that. James is saying, just as our state motto is, show me state. Show me your faith by your actions. Then James gives us an example in 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, Hey, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? The answer? It's no good. It's zero good. All right? We leave here today. We go out to the car. And you go out to your car. And you, and you get your kids in. And you're not paying attention. You slam your car door, slam your, your hand in your car door, and maybe you say something you shouldn't, or, or maybe your, your hand is, is crushed, it's bleeding, you're screaming, and I walk by you, and I'm like, hey, thanks for coming today. Hope you enjoy Gateway. I, have a great day today, okay? Take care. And I just go off. What good is it? You're like, that's a jerk. I'm never going to that church ever, ever, ever in my life again. What good is it? story this the good samaritan we all heard this story all these people saw this guy that had been beaten up by bandits and he's left almost dead all these people blast past him like oh that's really sad and all of a sudden the good samaritan stops and he, and he takes care of him and, he, and he, he puts him up somewhere and he, he takes care of his physical needs i mean what good would it be for the samaritan to go you know what that's really really sad that you got your stuff taken from you and you got beaten within an inch of your life i'm really sorry god be with you till we meet again James is saying it's of no good, no use. It's a dead faith. It's not worth it. It's not worth anything. But here's the deal. I do this. And you do this. And at times we do things and we see things and we feel pity, compassion 
but we do nothing for them because we're busy. Or we do this, we just kind of create a fictitious story as we see them on the side of the road with their sign saying, hey, I need a hand, need a help. And we go, you know what, they probably are going to do something else with it. And so we rationalize our, our reasons by, by not giving them money or not stopping and having a conversation or not stopping to pray with somebody or not to demonstrate Christ-like care for the people in our lives. To be sorry about someone is one thing, but to actually extend compassion and mercy to others is something totally different. A lot of people claim to care, but what good is it if they don't do anything for the person next door, someone at work, someone around the world? 1 John 3.17 says, if anyone has material possessions, this is going to sting, and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them. Here it is. How can the love of God be in that person? James is calling all Christ followers to love well, to live this out, to extend mercy and compassion to people because Jesus loved us well. Do you realize that? James 2.18, James continues, but, but some will say you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Underline that. James is saying faith is more than lip service. It's more than going to church. It's more than doing a 2020. It's more than being in the word. Genuine faith moves us to love God and love others in a radical way. Now, time out. Don't get confused here. It would be very easy for you to go, oh gosh, well, so am I saved or am I not saved? And this is not James' intent or my intent to leave you confused or paranoid spiritually when it comes to your, your lack of confidence or your insecurity or your lack of assurance. Here's, this, here's the deal. The scriptures give us full assurance of salvation, and I'm going to explain that in just a second. I mean, some of us go, well, I made a good confession. I, I said, Jesus, Lord and Savior. I walked an aisle. I was baptized. I, I, I turned from my old life to turn toward, toward God. But am I, am I saved? You know, here's, here's a scripture for you, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is my favorite passage. Everybody should know this passage, 2, 8 through 10. For it's by grace that you've been, just underline the whole thing, all right? For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork or his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You should know the power of this passage in your notes. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Alone. We can stand on that. Gateway, aren't you glad that when Jesus looked at all of us and mankind and your situation and my situation, that he didn't stay up in heaven and go, you know what? I'm really sad for them. I'm really sorry about them. My heart breaks for them. But he actually moved and he put on flesh, as Philippians 2 talks about it, and John 1, 1 talks about it. He put, he put on flesh and he walked among us and he lived a perfect life and he died in our place for our sins so that we could be rescued. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't simply intellectually believe that we needed to be rescued? But that actually moved to our deepest part of hopelessness, where we were when we had nothing to offer? He said, I'll take you. I'm choosing you. I'll take your place on a cross for your sins so that you could be reconnected back to my Father so that you could experience what it means to be adopted into our family, unconditional love and amazing grace, forgiveness for everything. 
See, God sent Jesus on a rescue mission to save us from our sin, to redeem, to restore. And we don't have to be spiritually paranoid because we make mistakes because God's forgiveness is, in, is complete and it's total. And we can have assurance in Christ's finished work on the cross. We are saved. Scripture says we're also being saved. And one day we will ultimately be saved. It's God's promises to us, all because of Jesus. We can have confidence in that. Back to James 2. He talks about faith and works, faith and deeds. Faith without deeds is dead, useless. In verse 26 it says this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So, okay. We're just, Scott, you're freaking me out. You're confusing me. Make sense of this. In your notes, write this down. This is the, this is the key to all of this. Here it is. We don't do good things to be saved. We do good things because we are saved. We don't do good things to be saved. We do good things because we are saved. We love because Jesus first loved us. We serve because he served us first. We forgive because we've been forgiven completely. We serve in this church because he first served us and he takes care of us as a good shepherd and a heavenly father does. It's why we serve here. It's why we want to give back because God and other people have served us well. It's why we have things like Serve Day and Mercy Ministries and Full Life Ministries and Caring Heart Ministries and Missions to Jamaica and Peru and Backpack Programs and Food Pantries and Life Group Leaders and Ministry Team Leaders. It's our student ministries and, and it's our children's uh, ministries. It's worship team and greeters and production teams set up and tear down. We do all these things because we want to serve people well and we want to serve our King who came first. And said, hey, if you want to be great, serve. And we serve because we want every single guest that comes through these doors, regardless of what they believe, what they know about God, to experience His love and His grace in an amazing way. We don't do things to earn our way to heaven to be saved. We serve and do good things because we are saved. And that should drive us to live our lives in an incredible way. Write this down. J.I. Packer says this, Faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. It's not this intellectual thing that doesn't impact us. It's, 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 faith is, is never alone. It changes everything in our lives. You see, when we're saved by grace through faith, it always leads to Christ-like actions. Always. James is calling out every person that hears his words, live this out. Live it out in your lives. How many of you have been in a rowboat? Let me see your hands. Rowboat, you know what I'm talking about? The whole deal? Okay. Uh, not a lot of fun on a hot day, but it's kind of fun if you're with your lady. Kind of good, you know? Uh, but the reality is there's two oars, okay, in this rowboat, okay? Depending on which way you're sitting, which way you're going. Just go with me. Uh, if, if the left oar, all right, my, my left, your right, this oar is the faith oar, okay? And this oar, my right, your left, is the, is the works or deeds oar. Here's the deal. Some people, James is saying, is going, you know what? All you got to do is have faith. You just have to believe. It, it doesn't really matter how you live. You don't have to do anything. It's all about faith. And so here's the deal. If I start using this oar in this boat by myself, where am I going? In a circle, going nowhere, right? Some people go, you know what, you don't really have to believe. You just got to do good things. And if you do good things, you know, it's going to work out. God's going to punch your ticket. It's going to be awesome. And so we're just, we're kind of doing this. And what happens here? We're just going to the opposite circle, right? We're going nowhere. We're doing nothing for the kingdom. But here's what's beautiful. When our faith and our actions are together in unison, 
We're moving forward. People are being impacted. Our faith is growing. Our trust in God is growing. He's being glorified. People are bumping into Jesus and coming to know Jesus. That's the reality of what it means to live this out and allow our faith to be the, bell, the, the billboard of how we live our lives. Brendan Manning said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny Him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelievable, unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's claiming to have faith, claiming to care, but failing to demonstrate either. Gateway, let's be the church that claims to have faith and claims to care by demonstrating it by the way that we live, the way that we serve, the way that we love, the way that we go out of our way, the way that we, we welcome inconvenience into our life. And the Spirit's prompting to love those who God puts in our path. That's a faith that works. That's a faith that impacts the world. That's a faith in the church that, that, that moves the mission of Christ forward, allowing all people to know and experience who God is. Let me just say this. Right? It's been a rough week for the church. It's been a rough week for, for Christianity. It's been a rough week for marriage this week. And you know what? I've seen all kinds of things. Stuff that frustrate me, stuff that disappoint me, stuff that saddens me. My heart breaks in lots of ways because the enemy and his deception and his lies and all these things. But here's the deal. What's the solution? What's the solution? Well, we can, we can yap and argue and blah, 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 blah. Or you know what we can do? We can get our hands dirty and we can go out and we can serve people. And we can do as Jesus did, which is in grace and truth, love people well regardless of their affiliation, regardless of their gender identification, regardless of whatever that is, to go and bring the gospel front and center to a world that is desperate for the real thing. Gateway, look at me. There's no greater time to be the church. And if you've been an embarrassed, weak, sit on the back uh, row of my faith type of passive believer, that time is gone. It's time for us to stand up and live this out the way that James calls us to, not just to say, yeah, I believe these things, but to actually show it by the way that we live. I love what John Stott says. He's a pastor from from Great Britain. He says, the invisible God who made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians. Is Christ visible in your life? In your words, in your actions, in your relationships? at work, at home? Is he visible? Does somebody go, you know what? Something different about you. May that be true of our church. Let me close by asking this question. What is God saying to you? What's he calling you to do? How is he challenging your faith? Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, God's calling us to trust Him and obey Him and live this out. Our faith is a show-me-state kind of faith. Gateway, let's chase and live boldly. Let's, let's unleash compassion and love generously and demonstrate that we really believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And He's our Lord and He's our Savior. And let's demonstrate that all people matter to God regardless of what they look like and what they believe because they matter to Jesus and that there is hope for every breathing person on the planet. Okay, wait, let's, let's unleash God's capacity here in our church to make a difference in how we live and that will impact how we live our lives and how we impact 
our community. I'm going to pray. And then there's a quick video just to kind of give you a snapshot of how some of this is happening in our church. So let me pray. Thanks for being here. God, we love you. Um, Hard truth. And God, I know that I've heard this before. Hard words produce soft hearts. Soft words produce hard hearts. And God, I pray that you would allow us to look at James 2 with sober judgment in our own hearts. And God, that your Holy Spirit would be free to speak to us in any way that you choose. God, thank you so much for this book and its practicality and how we're called to live differently and the world is very much driven on bias and favoritism and on and on and on. And God, you call us to live like Jesus, which was to love all people, to treat all people with dignity and respect, to love people enough to even share truth when when it's time and also to give grace, to give forgiveness. God, thank you that you weren't a God that just felt a certain thing for us intellectually, didn't just believe a certain thing for us from heaven, but that you actually came and you demonstrated your love. You showed us in your actions that, you were, that we were worth it to you, that we were, we were worth um, a rescue story and redemption is available for every person in this room. God, I pray for those in this room that have never experienced you, never gone public with their faith, that you would encourage them to take a step, to give their lives to you, to come pu- go public and be baptized. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to, the, to those of us in this room who've known you for a long time, and maybe our faith has gotten a little dusty. Maybe it's become kind of archaic or just intellectual, and that you would cause us to, to get off the couch, that we would push back from the table, and that we would actually exercise our faith by the way that we live and by the way that we love other people. And God, if we would do that, if we would unleash compassion and mercy in our community, that we would earn the right to be heard and that we would shine for you, the invisible God would become visible through us that people might bump into you and be changed forever. That's our prayer. God, may that be so in us. And God, as it continues to be harder and harder to, become a, to, to live out as a Christ follower, may you, may you give us boldness. May you give us conviction And may you give us love and compassion as we arm ourselves to be about your business because it's all about you. God, we love you and I thank you for this church. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.